and welcome to another episode of the William Branham Historical Research Podcast. I'm your host, John Collins, the author and founder of William Branham Historical Research at william-branham.org. And with me, I have my co-host, researcher, minister, and friend, Charles Paisley, the founder of ChristianGospelChurch.org. And together, we are examining the history and the intersections in history between William Branham and other key figures that either influenced or were influenced by the post-World War II healing revivals. Well, Charles, we <laughs> we tried to get through 10 examples of William Branham's greatest heresies, and we prefaced last week with these, you know, what's the greatest to one person may not be the greatest to another. We just chose what, in our opinion, these are the greatest heresies that he introduced into the church, and we didn't make it very far. <laughs> yeah, John, I think we got through uh, four. Uh, we were aiming for 10, um, but... I think we, 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 we are going to pick up here. Um, now, some of these are, are doozy. Some of them are did kind of go far and wide. Some of them are very niche to the message. Um, so the, the, I think the next one we'll talk about is outside of the message as well. And it is actually serpent seed, uh, Christian identity. Um, and that is uh, definitely a terrible... Uh, the terrible implications to the things that William Branham taught, you know, as we went through in the podcast series, um, I think we did probably three or four uh, episodes in total in a whole arc there, kind of bringing out the history of where it came from, how it got to William Branham, and then um, what it meant. And within the message, uh, certainly here among old timers in the message and in this area in Jeffersonville, it's very racial. Uh, it is a racial doctrine that targets non-white people and it turns them into something inferior. That is definitely what the teaching does um, in some other parts of the Latter Rain movement, right? We know George Houghton taught it in that way at Sharon Orphanage even. Um, we know the same thing is being taught in other Latter Rain churches where he went. Uh, we know it was taught in West Coast churches. We know it was taught up in, uh, for example, Broadway Tabernacle. Uh, which was a, a Lateran church in Seattle where Derek Prince was pastor even back in the 60s. So we know that this thing was taught in lots of places. Um, it predated William Branham. Um, and, and even in the message, you know, even if you don't believe the racial version of it, it's still a very destructive doctrine because it, it causes you to have to believe that some segment of the population, and probably the majority of them that aren't in your church, are descended from an animal and are really are not even fully human. And so it, it, it enables, um, really vicious things to be thought about, uh, the people on the outside because they're, they're not even, they're not even really people, right? They're serpent seed. They're serpent seed. This is one topic that it is a big mess of rabbit holes if you dive into this because William Branham was very deceptive in the way that he brought it. He took the words black and the words Jew out when he brought forth his alleged mystery of the serpent seed. He didn't tell you that, no, this was a mystery that he learned back in a church that was led by the second in command of the 1915 Ku Klux Klan. He doesn't tell you that part, but he he alleges that this is a mystery that he brought, and he takes the word black and the word Jew out, 
and he teaches the same exact doctrine that you'll find Wesley Swift preaching. And Swift is revered by some as the father of Christian identity, although it wasn't specifically him that invented this. But this is this one subject, this one question could this one topic could actually be broken out into an entire podcast series that I, I can probably think of 200 episodes just right off the bat. This could go on forever. It's such a big topic. <clears throat> and if you go back in time to the area that that my research focuses on, which is I, I try to stay within, you know, around 1890, maybe slightly before up until the Lateran revivals, and then I keep going back and forth trying to flesh all of that out into what, what did this actually look like and why, why have they covered it up? If you go back to the earlier phases of this, this was initially the British Israel doctrine, which we also described in our podcast, but the water gets very muddied whenever the, it begins to transition into the you know, from the British Israel doctrine to the Christian identity. And there's a third doctrine, which I'm just in the very infant stages of researching, and that's the Anglo-Saxon doctrine, which apparently was not quite the same, but very similar in um, Europe to the white supremacy doctrines of the states. You had the Anglo-Saxon, and they, you know, the Saxons were the supreme, um, the supreme race. So you had all of this, these things combining, this gets to be a very, very complicated question. But for the purpose of this podcast, we're talking about the heresy of it. <clears throat> and the heresy can be found, which we'll, Charles and I will get into a bit, but the heresy can be found in the fact that if you follow the serpent seed teaching all the way out to its logical conclusion, not even logical, William Branham openly says this in some cases, the seed line, in other words, your lineage, your historical, you know, the lineage of your family actually plays a bearing on your salvation, in which case the serpent seed doctrine, he has lifted it up, even though it was birthed in white supremacy, he has lifted it up into maybe not equal to, but something very closely related to salvation through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you take anything and lift it up and try to replace it, it becomes a new gospel. And we all know what the Bible says about those who introduce a new and false gospel. Right, John. And you know, this this topic and probably all the rest of them we're going to talk about uh, here on out, I have on my website, christiangospelchurch.org, on the main page, I have a kind of a William Branham series of, of articles and recordings where I, ha- I have went through all of these topics in s- significant detail and kind of gave them a comparison to scripture, <laughs> you know, if someone wants to deep dive any of them and, uh, you know, far more than I'm going to try and go into here. Uh, but, you know, as it, as it relates to serpent seed, I mean, the, the, the really the the terrible thing about it is is the what it allows um, people who believe it to do right what it justifies for them um, and obviously in the extreme sides of it you know people like the Aryan nations I mean it justifies the worst sorts of racism it justifies the um, oppression and you know forced subservience of non-whites I mean it's terrible. And in the message, what it does is it allows, even the people who maybe don't take it to its racial conclusions, it allows them to totally suspend 
um, any sort of um, even basic extending basic dignity towards people on the outside. Like you take uh, you and I, John, for example, um, we are nothing but serpent seed to these people, right? Because we've left and because yeah. we're serpent seed, it, it, they can justify the total suspension of even common human dignity, you know, to be extended. I mean, you listen to some of the preachers in this movement and the way, you know, they talk about people like you and I, um, we're not even human to them. Right. And that really is uh, how they're able to, to uh, get away with some of the stuff that they do. Right. You know, you're just, you're, you're really just an animal at that point. And they truly believe your destiny is to be slaughtered like an animal. And they, they can treat you like that in this life. Um, because of this serpent seed doctrine, this enables them to look at you as nothing, right? You are really little better than an animal because you are descended from an animal um, in their minds. Because to them, the serpent was, you know, in in uh, William Brown's version, the serpent was an animal in the Garden of Eden, a caveman, more or less, who was possessed by the devil, right? Who then, you know, progenerated the the serpent seed and yeah, I mean, that that really is just the absolute worst thing about it is the way that it allows them to suspend even common decency because you're not even a person. You have no you have no claim to even basic respect, basic dignity. You know, you, you're just an animal. Right. And that that's very sadly how they treat a lot of people who leave. Exactly. And what's really odd, Charles, is the fact that William Branham introduced this as a physical seed the two seed bloodline if if you go back and just look at the dual seed or the two seed doctrine you'll find it relates all the way back to white supremacy william branham taught that it was a literal seed that the serpent from the garden of eden literally impregnated eve and created cain and cain's offspring his lineage the seed of cain the seed of the serpent were all evil according to this doctrine and then you know Towards the flood, the waters got muddied. There were mixing between good seed and bad seed. And he does give like a, a trail of, of the pure bloodline in some of his teachings. But <clears throat> this is a very physical thing that he's talking about. But the ministers today, they weaponize it further by claiming that somebody like you or I who questions the human, William Branham, who they've deified, that we can now become the serpent seed. And they'll even use this label on us. They'll call us serpent seed. Charles and John are serpent seed because we question William Branham. So they've actually taken a step further than William Branham. And, you know, what William Branham taught was evil. Don't get me wrong. But what they've done with it now is so far even worse because think of the prodigal son, you know, or any of the Bible passages about somebody who went astray and you lead them back with love and kindness and bring them back into the gospel, unto the loving arms of Jesus Christ. There are many verses talking about this. There's no allowance for that. In other words, the gospel has lost power with every single minister in the message who has adopted this you can become the serpent seed or we can curse you. Usually it's the curse. We can curse you by calling you serpent seed, and now we've doomed you to hell. And the Bible speaks very, very clearly about people who use curses to, you know, for spiritual authority or whatever is the purpose they're doing it, purposes of evil, basically. This is an evil thing that they're doing when they weaponize the serpent seed. Yeah, so serpent seed is is terrible, you know, not necessarily in the, 
magnitude of its complication or, you know, disagreement with scripture, but as you know, it's really just a couple passages that, that they, that they twist, but it's the, the ramifications of it are, are really bad. It really bad. Um, it, it's very sad, very unfortunate. And it, it's kind of like, um, and I think Doug Weaver actually says something along this line in his book about it. It's like William Branham has this double, double predestination. And so then it kind of comes this hyper Calvinist, um, concept where, you're predestinated to salvation doubly, uh, both genetically, you know, so your genetic parentage is now has to, you know, be predestinated just the right way for you to be saved. And then your salvation somewhat is then based on this, you know, p physical, literal parentage um, that you have had. And this also, John, kind of leans towards how, you know, entire families get purged out when... Um, <laughs> truth is entire families get purged out when they find one bad person in the family right yeah. you've seen this you know in the cult in the church purgings you know this person did this and before you know it their whole family and everybody out of uh, everyone along that line is purged out i really think serpent seed has uh has a role to play in that because again they do think it's inherited um you know and i've seen terrible things happen with people and, and they end up blaming the parents um well your children did this well it's your fault your parents right and then they end up drummed out as well so Serpent seed's a very, very problematic doctrine uh, in that way. So I guess kind of the next item on the list. So heresies, serious heresies that William Branham taught. And this one is, there's flavors of this throughout actually charismatic Christianity. And it in, in, in our specific implementation in the message or adaptation, it's that William Branham was the return of Elijah. He was the Elijah of Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Um, and that was uh, one of the very first things that William Branham rolled out kind of privately, not too publicly, that brought together his original cult following um, in the mid and early 50s uh, was that he was the return of Elijah. This is what uh, the message grew out of was the people who accepted those Elijah claims that he made. And I think that... <laughs> You know, in, in the sense that you see that move out into broader Christianity. So I will say it came, that also came from British Israelism, right? The, the yeah. concept of Elijah returning to the church was born out of British Israelism. It got um, imported into early Pentecostalism from the British Israelite ministers who joined early Pentecostalism. John Alexander Dowie, Charles Parham, John Lake, you know, on down. Gordon Lindsay was of that faction. F.F. Bosworth was. And, of course, all these connect lead straight to William Branham, right? And where you see it move beyond the message and out into the other latter range factions and then even broader charismatic Christianity is you'll hear them talk about the Elijah generation, you know, or, you know, we're waiting for the Elijah spirit, you know, in these last days. There is this concept that somehow this Elijah thing still has to happen right before the end. And this actually, uh, within Latter Rain, was tied closely to the manifested sons of God because they believed, you know, the power that Elijah showed to call fire down from heaven and, and all of this. And they even to take the, you know, all the priests of Grail down to the brook Kidron and um, kill them all, execute them all. They tie all of this to this manifestation of power um, in Elijah um, that they see being carried out in the last days by this either generation of Elijahs or, you know, the Elijah anointing coming on a particular person. And that, that flows very much out of, out of this stuff. And it, it, 
it ends up creating this, uh, um, for the individual figures who claim it, it allows them to create cults of personality around themselves. And then for the, you know, the whole, the generation of Elijah things, it, it sets them chasing this manifested sons of God type idea where all these people are going to be empowered to bring in the last days. Um, and it just leads to craziness. It just everywhere. It only leads to craziness and it don't lead to anything but craziness. For me, this one is very complicated. If you were never in any of this weird mess that we were in or anything similar to it, you'd, you'd be asking yourself, well, how does that heresy that he claimed to be Elijah, how can you say that's heresy? And what I've come to understand through my research, and largely thanks to you, because I, I was not aware that it was tied to British Israelism, once I understood that and understood what that meant, this became the framework for creating heresy. So if we were to rank this one, I would rank this one really high because it's not specifically that this is heretical, it's just false teaching. But the fact that you build so much heresy on top of it, that is really the problem. Manifested Sons of God obviously is a heresy that William Branham taught, and that's built on the top of this framework that he claimed to be Elijah. <clears throat> For the historians that are interested, if you go back and you look at, you know, John Alexander Dowie was obviously claimed to be Elijah. He was like the most famous Elijah that America has ever had. He was all over the newspapers as the Elijah. And in fact, he was more of an Elijah than William Branham because they, you find very few newspapers mentioning Branham and his Elijah claims. But Dowie was, I can't remember how many, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of newspapers where he is labeled that. If you go back to Frank Sanford, Frank Sanford was a British Israelite who openly taught C.A.L. Totten in his um, Shiloh Bible School. And Charles Fox Parham, the founder of modern Pentecostalism, caught wind of this, and he came, and he was trained in this, and lo and behold, he suddenly becomes a British Israelite, and he later claims to be Elijah when he tries to take Dowie's throne later in, uh, see, the 1906 or 1907, but like Charles said, you carry this forward and you can find this all throughout early Pentecostalism, etc. But the framework that I'm talking about that you have to understand is that they have specifically taken the passage from the fourth chapter of Malachi, where it is talking about, you know, Malachi 4, 5, and 6 are the ones that they use specifically. It is literally talking about the second, the first coming of Jesus Christ. And I think in in the Gospel of Luke, I think it even says specifically, this is the <clears throat> this is the Elijah that was said to come. What these guys do is they try to take verses out of context and apply it to the British Israel theory that the white the people with white skin of the British Isles are the lost ten tribes of Israel, and as such we can take specific verses out of context from all throughout the Old Testament, and they're applicable to our day and age, well, their day and age back then. It's, it is so heretical because whenever you open the door to this, in other words, take something that the, the Bible never intended to say and then twist it to say whatever is your current agenda, 
They're doing this with Old Testament passages. They're doing it with New Testament passages. They go so far in the manifested sons of God framework that they're taking verses that were specifically applicable to Jesus Christ, and they're applying it to men who are these quote-unquote manifested sons of God. None of that is possible if you take away this Elijah framework that was created. And again, it's layers upon layers of of false doctrine, some heretical doctrines, but it's British Israel compounded with Christian identity, compounded with the Elijah claim, manifested sons of God. All of this is it's like a witch's brew, man. It's all these false doctrines and heretical doctrines. And then they spread it out on this cookie sheet and make this this thing that they're going to build a cake on top of. That's that's how weird this is. It is the framework that allowed all of this to be created. Right, John. And and, and like I mentioned with Serpent Seed, um, back on my website, you know, I've got a fairly detailed analysis, comparison of those things to scriptures if someone wants to deeper dive into that. But it's definitely one of the fundamental heresies that William Branham taught upon which he based his cult, right? I mean, it is, it's a foundational claim to the cult. And part of, part of what it is, is they use the last part of Malachi 4, you know, where he's supposed to turn the hearts of the uh, children back to the fathers. They take that as a restoration claim um, that this anointing is going to restore the church back to a pure apostolic faith, a pure book of Acts sort of format. And that is a uh, fuel on their restoration views, right? And what you what you have, and I'll, I'll just tack this on restorationism in general. What you see with these movements is they never get done restoring. <laughs> you know, uh, you know they, they restore, but the end don't come. So there must be more to restore, right? And then they restore that and more don't come. And so you end up with this revival after revival after revival, and they're constantly chasing the next big revival that's going to finally do it. And then it don't do it either, right? And so you, and what it does, over time, it just keeps compounding, compounding, compounding. And instead of, you know, instead of restoring the church back to its original form, um, what they have actually done is create a whole array of horrendous cults that molest children, rape people, kill people. it, it's something else, and it does not look like the Book of Acts. I can tell you that there weren't no child molesters in the upper room. <laughs> yeah. You know, it does not look like the Book of Acts. You got to be kidding me, right? There was no Gene and Leos in the upper room, John. Right? I mean, was there a Gene and Leo in the upper room? No. I mean, give me a break. Give me a, a break. So, yeah. So I'll I'll, I'll, I'll kind of drop that one at that. And for those who aren't aware of the Gene and Leo, we talked about this earlier in the podcast. William Branham had these two, he called them his tape boys. That Go back and look at the episodes on Deborah Thibodeau. She was in this William Branham compound called The Park, and there were some, I won't go into details, there were some very horrific things that happened in The Park, and they were the the two closest men to William Branham. This this was his inner circle. These were very very bad men, and people in the message knew what was going on. That's that's really the crux of this. So when you think about the upper room, think about if Paul had his Charles called him his Gene and Leo, but you know picture any two guys who are in the upper room that the other elders in the room knew were molesting children. That's it's really really bad. 
can't can't say enough bad about that but <clears throat> yeah this the elijah claim for me like i said it is the framework for very bad doctrine and i wish we had <laughs> another time for another 20 episodes because we could talk about all the things that stacked on top of that because people you know I, i've heard it simply put william branham was a quote-unquote prophet who went astray by claiming to be Elijah. That's how they simplify this. And at its surface, that may be true. But if you open what's under the covers of this thing and you start to understand what all is associated with that Elijah claim, you start to realize that this is not a good person that did this. This is a very evil mind that did this. Good men don't do this thing that he did. And so if you are a researcher and you're researching the NAR prophets claims that William Branham was this good guy went astray. And so therefore send me your money because I'm a good guy who is just like William Branham. Go look at his Elijah claim and look at all that was stacked on top of that and the framework that existed. And you'll start to realize that maybe these guys might be the same way. And William Branham was not a good man. I think the, the next item maybe to chat about, John, is that William Branham inserted himself into Matthew chapter 25. Um, he claimed that, you know, there, there's the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. And, you know, at, at midnight, a cry went forth uh, that the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. I'm sure you're like me, John. You all these things are memorized. We heard you're triggering so me, man. <laughs> <laughs> At midnight, you know, the cry went forth. Um, so we believe that, that that was William Brown. He was the one who made this cry at midnight, go ye forth to meet the bridegroom. Um, and that his message was the midnight cry. Okay. And so he inserted himself in there. Now, this is, again, uh, probably niche to the message. Now, where did William Brown get this? He, he adapted this out of Jehovah's Witness teachings, where it came from. But he um, he set himself up that his message was the midnight cry, and you needed to listen to that message in order to then go out and meet the, uh, you know, the Lord at a second coming. And so, again, I, I put this into the important heresies because it is again foundational to the message people will tell you the message is the midnight cry right the message is the midnight cry no it isn't and william branham was not the midnight cry matthew 25 right um and so it's very problematic what william branham did with that parable and and again he used that to create an us versus them mentality uh he used that to divide and separate um his followers from the rest of Christianity, you know, you people that have heard my midnight cry and have come followed me, you are the wise virgins. Now you understand. And those people out there, they are all foolish and they are all going to burn up and die. And so I, I think that that definitely is something that's worth making the top 10 list, um, both from the aspect of, of course, absolute heresy for him to insert himself into Matthew 25. Um, and then second, uh, because of the way it allows message believers to look down their nose at real Christians. <laughs> yeah. 
All of you who have left the message and are listening to or watching this podcast, you can all feel sorry for me because I know that you're going through it. And if you're going to a new church, you'll hear a preacher say something and it's one of those trigger words that just trigger you and suddenly you come unglued. It's more problematic for me than a lot of people because towards the end of my years in the message, I was struggling deeply with depression. And one of my main trigger points was that I... I struggled whenever I was taught that I had to believe that these other people who I loved, who weren't in the message, that they were cannon fodder, that they were serpent seed, that they were all of these insulting phrases that we were taught and manipulated to call them. I had a, I had a severe issue with this. This was problematic to me. And <clears throat> to think that they used this doctrine to sever the body of Christ, you know, I know that there are people who are never in the message that they look at all message people as, you know, they've not accepted the gospel and they're doomed to hell. I look at them like they're, if you're in the message, there are people who actually want to and try to and believe that they do believe in Jesus Christ in the message. And I have to look at them like they're just blinded Christians. If they were actually given the true gospel, they would believe it. They've been manipulated in their heads not to, unfortunately. Those Christians have been severed from the main body of Christians, and they've been isolated, and even though there's no physical walls around them, they have these mental barriers between them and all other Christians, and the Gestapo ministers that are in these cults are manipulating them to hate the people on the outside while saying that you love them and you feel sorry for them and they're cannon fodder and cannon fodder means that they're the ones who are expendable and should die. It's that bad. So when you think of levels of heresy, the blast radius of this one is massive because you've got ministers who are literally severing the body of Christ with this doctrine. And like I said, for me, this was so problematic that when I am in a service and they mention any phrase that is associated with this doctrine, it has been so badly taught in the message that I actually cannot sit through a sermon with it. And I don't know when, that, when I'll be able to. It may be, I may never in my life be able to sit through a sermon where they mention any of these phrases. It's that bad. That's how heretical this is. That's how evil this is. And it serves no other purpose I've studied it backwards and forwards, left and right. I find no other purpose than to sever the body of Christ. I, I think you are exactly right, John. And, and I think that, you know, the way you describe message people there is good, too, because you're right. I mean, a lot of the people in there are genuine, authentic Christians who really do believe on Christ as their Savior, right? And somehow that has been hijacked in them. And with a lot of them, there, this this parable of the foolish virgins is one of the main ways in which they've done that because they've they've convinced the people that Jesus Christ is just about to come any minute now for sixty years in a row, <laughs> and and you can't and you need this midnight cry or you will not make it. You will be left behind and burned up if you get away from this midnight cry because this you got to be here to meet him right. And they keep the people trapped with that. Um, but, you know, j just from a very basic sense, John, and again, I on, on my website, I've, I've walked through a lot of these things in detail. If, if you want to go look again, I got an article on this specifically. But 
you can't, this is an example of William Branham interpreting symbols and telling us what the symbols mean, right? So William Branham in that parable is the one who tells us what all the symbols mean, right? That parable does not say there's going to be an elite group of Christians who are going to hear a last day message from a certain prophet, and then those people are going to be eligible for the rapture and everyone else is going to burn up. That is not what that parable says. By a mile, right? We only believe that because that is what William Branham told us all those symbols mean. And, you know, you can go back and you can look at those things and you can ask yourself now that you know William Branham was absolutely had no authority whatsoever from God to interpret those symbols. And you can ask yourself, does that interpretation align with the plain reading of Scripture? Right. I mean, does it does that does that interpretation of those symbols, uh, you know, fit with, you know, what Paul said, for example, being justified by his blood, we shall be saved from all wrath. I mean, does that fit with it? You know, and and when you do that very simple analysis, right, having, you know, let go of William Branham as a source of authority, um, you know, you just have to come back to the conclusion that William Branham interpreted those symbols in a terribly wrong way. And let me let me point out one like terrible, um, just one really terrible contradiction in that. So, you know, in that parable, right, John, um, they all hear the midnight cry. The foolish virgins say, we don't got no oil. We need oil, right? And then they go out to buy and sell. And, of course, we believe that meant they went to Oral Roberts Revival or something, right? <laughs> it's so crazy. But, <laughs> right? But, okay, so they, they, they heard the midnight cry. They didn't have no oil. So they went to Oral Roberts Revival to get oil. And, um, but, you know, oil represents them getting the Holy Spirit. But the evidence of believing the Holy Spirit is believing the message, right? Yeah. Why did they send them to Oral Roberts to get the <laughs> message? Like it, when you just take a logical analysis of it, it don't even, it don't even make sense, right? Why would you send them, you know, to the denominations for oil when the evidence of the Holy Spirit's believing the message? Why didn't you give them the message? And here's that you listen to that parable. Obviously, the foolish virgins heard the message, right? They heard the midnight cry, and they woke up, but they, what they. They obviously believe the message, yeah. right? Because <laughs> they said we need oil. So why didn't the message save them, right? Didn't they believe this to believe in the message can't be the evidence of the Holy Spirit? I mean, it all just, the message is nonsense when you, when you, you know, take away William Branham's, um, as the authority. It just does not, it is not coherent, right? And anybody with, with even half a lick of sense that can, can take, uh, William Branham's craziness and set it to the side, but just, Childlike logic can go through that and say, this does not make sense. This does not make sense. I can't think of a single message believer today that <clears throat> if Oral Roberts were alive, that they would even go to a meeting. They've been, <laughs> they've been taught that he's the serpent seed. He's the false prophet. He's the, yeah, there's so many different names that they give him, but you're right. It doesn't make sense when you think of it from a religious standpoint. I think of these things from a business standpoint, because this was not a religion. Unfortunately, this was a political cult, not a religious cult. And these were businessmen. They even called themselves full gospel businessmen. Well, I am in the IT business and I have companies who are competitors, but they're also partners in, in a way. They, they have their things that they're niche that they're good at. And I have my thing and sometimes I'll, I'll 
cross-advertise. And that's what this is. He was literally cross-advertising with Oral Roberts. And and I'm sure Oral Roberts was doing the same thing back to him. They were feeding each other business. That's all this comes out to. And, you know, I, I hate to use it because it's so overused, but the money tables, Jesus coming in and turning over the money tables. Think of what Jesus would do if he came back today and he saw what was going on here. Here's a man who's, you know, Jesus come back to earth. Here's a man who's claiming that his words are equal to mine, Jesus. Here's guys that are making money off of me and cross-advertising with each other. And they're both claiming that they have this manifestation of God or whatever. It's just so incredibly wrong, man. And, and who who ran William Branham's merchandise booth at the revivals? Gene and Leo. What do you think Jesus would do when he came to Gene and Leo's merchandise booth selling William Branham memorabilia? At the, I mean, come on. I mean, it's it's something else. And it's just so crazy, John. At the end of the day, it is just so crazy. You know, the the, the parable of the ten virgins cannot possibly be what, what William Branham said. And here's the thing. William Branham has been dead for 60 years, right? Um, almost everybody who heard the midnight cry is dead. And probably, you know, in a few more years, they will all be dead. There will be none left. And so then how does that make any sense, right? I mean, the people heard the midnight cry, go get ready for the rapture, and then they all died. Like, how does that make sense? And that literally is just about where the message is. Um, it, it just ceases to make sense, you know, with the with the time lapse that has happened in it. And most of the message preachers out there today never met William Branham. I mean, you know, the, the nut down in Happy Valley, he never met William Branham. Those people were not in the message back then. There was maybe 12 message churches when William Branham died, maybe 12, roughly 12. There were no more than two or 3,000 people in the message when he died. And a good chunk of them quit when he died, right? I mean, <laughs> they... They're, they're almost all gone. Yeah. They're almost all gone. There are very few left, and given a few more years, there will be none left. And then that parable, again, just ceases to make sense from a mere matter of time, right? Um, it, it, it really is something else. Hey, on that front, uh, let me throw in one more tidbit, John. So this is a sidetrack. So <laughs> in my research since I've been left, and you know, I have said I was the assistant pastor of the second continuously, or the second oldest continuously operating message church. So I've been researching um, you know, message history. And there's two churches that are now defunct that I thought was older than our church, but I was mistaken. So I was actually the assistant pastor of the second oldest message church overall in the entire oh, wow. message. We were the original sister church to the Branham Tabernacle that I was pastor of. We are the second oldest uh, message church that I come from. So, hey, I got <laughs> upgraded since since we've been pet, uh, before. So That's really funny because we in the main sect wouldn't have considered you guys, quote unquote, message people. You, you had gone astray, right? And on that note, what's really funny is I, because of James's research, I am more aware than I even want to be of <laughs> what all of these message churches are doing. And the version of the message that exists today, even in the sect that I came from, is nothing like the message when I was in it. It is a night and day difference. It is two different messages. There are two different cults, and they're nowhere near 
close to what it was whenever I left it. And I was not alive when William Branham was. So I can only assume that <laughs> it's even further night and day difference between when I was in it and William, William Branham was alive. So when it really comes right down to it, even though we considered you not to be part of the message because you didn't quote unquote believe the message, I would now argue based on James's research and what you're telling me now that there is not a single minister who is in any of the cult or the splinter groups who is actually a message believer, at least with William Branham's message. Now, Branham himself had different versions of the message, but they don't believe any of the versions that existed during his lifespan. I would agree with that, John. And, you know, on that same front, we would look at the tabernacle and we say, you don't believe the message, right? And we would say, we are actually the original tabernacle congregation, <laughs> who all exited when the deity people moved in and took over, right? Like, and every, every sect of the message is like that. We're the original. We're the only believers of the message. And I would say, and, and all the rest of you churches out there, eat your hearts out. I mean, the only two <laughs> churches that had any claim to actually be the original message would be my church and your church, John. Yeah. We were the original people who were sitting there with William Branham from the beginning. Not any of the rest of them, right? And the hubris, <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> the hubris of all of these out-of-town nuts that think yeah. they know more about all this than I mean, it, it blows your mind. It's it so funny. <clears throat> it's so funny. I, th I think it was James that sent it to me, but one minister after I had first started my research and began publishing critical information to William Branham, they actually said that the reason that I did is because I came from the main sect and those people are crazy. And <laughs> now I look back and I think, wait a minute, man, you, you're a reason. The reason you exist is because of the main sect. You are, you are a grandchild of this thing, right? But, you know, even still, they, they do not believe William Branham's message. By far, they're not even close to it based on just simply the transitions that's happened since I've left. They have no idea. And they, they were not in direct line of succession like your church and our church where oh, yeah. William Branham have the secret revelations passed down to them from the prophet, right? So, I mean, how do they even claim, right? That's why they don't know the secret of the serpent seed, some of them, John, right? <laughs> because you were not in direct line of the prophet uh, like my church and your church was, John. So, yeah. anyway, moving on in, to the next question. <laughs> if you're in one of those churches, just simply ask them, what is the mystery of the seven seals and the seven thunders that William Branham taught? <laughs> It's something else, John. It really is. It really is. There are very few preachers. This is the truth. There are very few preachers that can claim an unbroken line of succession back to William Branham. Very few. And um, yeah. most of them are either from my sect, John, or yours, the sect that you came from. And there's really not many. You know, Leavale could. Leavale could. But there's not many others that can. Um, not in any meaningful way. None of them were central in any way to the message during William Branham's lifetime. You know, you know the Cloverdale people. The I could just go down the list. Perry Green. <laughs> I'll say him. He's dead. He was a joke for goodness' sakes. I mean, nobody liked Perry Green. I mean, and he basically kind of hostile takeover after William Branham died. You know, with all of that stuff. But yeah. anyway, we won't get into all of that. Let's move on to the next heresy. Okay. How about that? All right, number, next one. William Branham claimed that his shout, or his message, was the shout of 1 Thessalonians 4 9. So, you know, the Lord descends from heaven with a shout. So he claimed that happened in 1963, right? That was what the cloud was supposed to be, the Lord descending from heaven, and then his message was the shout. So, again, he's inserting himself into scripture, he's setting that up as a foundation. 
um, uh, that turns into the message. And once again, um, you know, the Bible does not say the shout will be a last day message that, you know, will appear from the face of Jesus in the sky and deliver it to you by, you know, God's humble prophet. The, me- the Bible does not interpret the symbolism um, at all the way that William Branham did. And, and the only way the message arrives at their beliefs about that is that that's what William Branham said. And once again, that's that's adapted out of old school Jehovah Witness literature is where that stuff comes from. Um, it's not even original to William Branham. He just stole it from Charles David Russell, who pointed it all to himself, right? But it's, um, it's again, I, I would put that into one of the major heresies because it is so foundational to the message. And that is how we arrive at the belief that most sects of the message believe that Jesus Christ returned in some fashion or another in 1963. We, we believe a second coming already happened generally in the message in one shape or another spiritually angelically we had different mystically different words depending on the sect the perusia different sects the brides coming right there's different language to describe it but the message almost universally believes that jesus christ returned in some way in 1963 which is an absolute heresy jesus christ has not returned Jesus Christ, the second coming has not happened in any shape or form. It is not in progress. It has not started. It has not occurred. Heresy. It's a hoax. I didn't realize that you had added this, but I'm actually glad you added this because I was trying while I was explaining the the framework of the Elijah <clears throat> ministry, how that allows heresy to be built on top of it. This is one because, as I mentioned, they can take passages of the Bible and then rip them out of context and say, this applies to me, who is your central figure. And in this particular example, this is one of the better examples because they ripped out not even a single verse. They ripped out part of a verse. Verse 16 says, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel. And every minister who says this thing that I've ever heard you know, and I've been to churches from coast to coast. They they will repeat this over and over. You hear it sermon after sermon after sermon, but that's not the full verse. It says, and the dead in Christ shall rise first at the end of that verse. I think we've mentioned this before. They claim that this applies to William Branham, the first half of this verse. And it's really, really heretical when you think about it, because they're saying that William Branham is the Lord himself who descended. And one of the reasons they say this is because the part before they they stop is they say, with the voice of the archangel, they, in the message, this is a common thing, William Branham had a spirit guide who he said was an archangel, and sometimes he said this angel was Jesus Christ, which is another heresy built on top of this thing, but... <clears throat> Because William Branham claimed that he had this alleged angel, which he, you know, we've examined this. He never is consistent on what this angel looks like or when he met him or any of the details. It it was all fiction. But because he claimed this, they claim that that phrase with the voice of the archangel, he claims that that is applicable, applicable to William Branham. And it's heretical because it's the Lord himself. But we all know that the dead in Christ have not risen, so this cannot be, and it is so badly ripped out of context that they've left off the second half of that verse. Something else, John. Something else. And and once again, I've just been kind of shooting off the hip here with all of these as we've been going through. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> you can't tell. But again, there, I have a, I have a detailed hundreds. article on this on my <laughs> website. If you want the full, my full analysis of this shout. Uh, yeah. Issue. <laughs> there are hundreds of heresies, man. That, that's the other problem I had. I said I was having trouble <laughs> responding to this email. Well, how many hundreds of them are there, man? And and how do you rank the hundred? How do you say that this is in the top ten? You you could literally grab any ten and say this is the most heretical thing ever, and you're going to find ten more that are just as equally heretical. And it, it's and every version of the message has its own terminology to explain it in its own nuanced way and. You know, depending on which sect you come at, you got to talk about it an entirely different way. If I want to talk to the Lee Vale sect about it, all I got to talk about the Perugia, right? You yeah. know, if I want to talk to the, I won't say some of their names, well, I'm going to have to talk about the Bride's Coming. You know, if I'm going it, to, it's different in, in every sector terminology. They have a slightly different um, twist on how to apply it, what it means. You know, if you're talking to Fred Sothman, you got to talk about how William Branham became God incarnate, you know, with the Second Coming. But it's, um, it, 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 each one of them has their own spin, and it, it's very complex to try and um, generalize. And you really can't. You can't generalize message teachings because it is so nuanced. And William Branham himself was so contradictory, it's hard to even say which he, which is the official version because there isn't. There's like 10 versions, yeah, and everybody gets their own combination of it. So, all right. So moving on to... Um, the next one, so I think this is number nine out of our top ten. Um, so, William Branham also claimed that he or his message, so this goes to the conflicts, he or his message was <laughs> the revealing of the Son of Man in Luke 17.30. Right? Wow. And uh, this, this also connects with the, um, well, you know, with the Lord descending from heaven in 1963. William Branham taught that either he, if you're in the deity side, or his message, if you're most everybody else, was the revealing of the Son of Man. And so William Branham is taught that Luke 17.30 is fulfilled. The Son of Man has been revealed. It was revealed in him or his ministry somewhere or the other. And every sect of the message has maybe a unique spin on how that happened. My sect definitely believe that that was fulfilled in William Branham's ministry um, in a non-deity kind of way. Uh, but everyone in the message... And if you don't believe this, you don't believe the message <laughs> believes that Jesus, the revealing of the Son of Man in Luke 1730 uh, has already happened. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the day when the Son of Man shall be revealed. <laughs> when I first started my website, I think it was on the old YouTube site that the cult brought down. <clears throat> I went into a deep dive of this because I was so upset that they had manipulated me to believe that William Branham was the fulfillment of this passage, which every Christian is aware was supposed to point to Jesus. I was angry that they did this to me. And I went through, I can't tell you how many different days. I used to do these 45-minute examinations of what he said and what the Bible said. And to the extent people actually told me that I was preaching, which I, I'm not a preacher. I was not preaching. I was just studying and I was trying to understand it. And I got a lot of things wrong, but <clears throat> it was my way of processing this. And it's very embarrassing. You, you can actually find a lot of it on my blog. if you. I'm embarrassed to have it out there, but you can see a progression of my mindset if you study the entire blog. <clears throat> but I, I was pretty crazy back then. I believe some crazy things. This tops one of the most craziest that to believe that William Branham was the fulfillment of 
this passage, which was clearly pointing to Jesus. <clears throat> and the thing that <laughs> the thing that struck me as the funniest at the end of this passage, they you know, they're talking that I think is the disciples. They say, <clears throat> um, where, Lord? And he says in the King James Version, it says where the carcass is, the eagles will gather. <clears throat> well, this <laughs> this became <clears throat> such loaded language because he tried to say that. That passage, when the word eagles was mentioned, that was actually mentioning our little group of believers in the message. And this, he tried to phrase it such that it was a good thing. And I, I was even more angry when I found out how wrong that was <clears throat> because we were taught that the eagles was this holy bird. And ironically, eagles is one of the birds that was detested by God. If you go study the old covenant. But the, the word there, it can, it's also the same word that's used for vultures. It's basically a bird of prey who can eat a dead rotting carcass. And what he's referring to here is these birds who don't care that they're eating something excessively nasty. Where you find this dead rotting carcass, you're going to find these birds of prey that are eating the rotting carcass. And the irony of all of this, Charles, is he said that that rotting carcass was his message. And when I found that, I'm like, no way, man. This, <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. This is one, this is some funny thing, man. And, and he, he approached it, you know, the eagle will only eat a fresh kill. Therefore, this is the fresh <laughs> revelation, the fresh word, the present truth <laughs> that they're eating, right? Therefore, the. I can't. Re I mean, the shock the first time I ever saw an eagle eating roadkill, John. I yes. can't uh, describe to you. The first time I saw it, I'm like, what? Eagles only eat fresh meat. Uh, no, you have been fooled. <laughs> Eagles eat roadkill. Yeah, they sure do. I, I've, I've seen it with my own eyes. I don't even know where William Branham came up with that stuff. But, you know, it, again, the se Luke 17.30, that is... Terrible heresy, right? Because no matter how the message people do it, they are making William Branham or his message in some shape or form a fulfiller of the revealing of the Son of Man, the revealing of Jesus Christ, the second coming of Jesus Christ. And again, we've talked about how the message in some shape or form everywhere has has put, Jesus, has put William Branham into the role of Jesus Christ. And that is exactly what they're doing with Luke 17.30. They're yeah. taking something that is Jesus Christ, and they're giving it to William Branham. Absolute heresy. Absolute heresy, right? There, There is absolutely no excuse for that, right? And those sort of things, uh, I, I just, I look back now, and it, it takes my breath away that how we, how we went along with those things. And I don't care, wherever you're at, if you're from the churches I come from, if you're in the Thunders, if you're in the, in the Third Exodus, if you're in the Main Sect, you're with the brides coming people, wherever you are, you know, you're with Ewald Frank, you all believe that William Branham had a role to play with the revealing of the Son of Man in Luke 1730. That is terrible heresy. Don't tell me you haven't taken uh, the things of Jesus Christ and given it to William Branham. I mean, of course you have. Of <clears throat> course you have. Right. I mean, it's just dishonesty. So yeah. again, on my website, I've got a, a lengthy article where I examine that piece as well, John, if people want my detailed analysis more than I've said right here, but I, I think we covered the gist of that one. 
It is unbelievable. And like I say, I, I was shocked too the first time I saw an eagle eating roadkill, man. <laughs> I'll never forget. I was in a restaurant and <clears throat> it was actually here in Jeffersonville. And I was a little surprised because I did not realize that eagles came all the way this far south. And um, I was in a restaurant in Jeffersonville and suddenly I watched this. I actually saw the animal get killed. I, was, I can't remember a squirrel or something got ran over by a car. And suddenly this eagle swoops down and I look out no way that's not an eagle <laughs> and uh, it's you know to an average normal person who is never in this you're gonna think oh, that's a pretty stupid subject to talk about but if you're in the message and you see an eagle eating roadkill i can't describe to you what this does to your head because that was one of the primary doctrines in the message there are even songs out there that saying we are the eagles and it's referring to this verse where there's a dead rotting carcass which oh by the way is branham's message and these birds of prey are eating the rotting nasty carcass that should be thrown in the trash <laughs> something else john so coming down to, to the last thing the last thing that uh, you know would make my top 10 list anyway of of heresies of William Branham. This is kind of a, 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 a double hitter. So <laughs> William Branham taught that he was the angel of Revelation 10-7 and that he was the angel to the church of Laodicea. And of course, in the message, we would summarize that. He said he was the seventh church age messenger. And once again, um, you know, we have an incredible heresy there where William Branham is setting himself up and inserting himself into scripture um, and and just doing something that is so far outside the realm of what is even appropriate for him to have done. Um, and once again, not original to him. He, he copied those things verbatim from old school Jehovah Witness literature. Charles Taze Russell again, right? These are not ideas that he came up with, not divine revelation. He just copied it from other people. And he basically set himself up there that he was the final messenger uh, to set the formula of salvation for the final age, right? Uh, and... In so doing that, you have to accept his message to be saved. And then in Revelation 10, 7, he sets himself up as the voice there that unveils the final mysteries, which then, and again, he adds in to give the church the rapturing faith so that they can go in the rapture. Now, again, once again, is those things are in the Bible, but what those symbols mean is not interpreted by the Bible. The Bible doesn't say that... <laughs> Revelation 10-7 is a last-day prophet who will appear, reveal to you final mysteries, which will then give you the power to go in the rapture, right? It doesn't say that. It no. does not say that, right? You only, we only be, are able to uh, take that because William Branham, we thought, had divine power to interpret what those symbols mean to us, right? Well, lo and behold, he was just copying what Charles Taze Russell said those symbols meant. But, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> We, we thought we thought that, that he he put himself into a spot there where he now has the special message of special revelations of hidden mysteries um, that you need um, in order to be saved and make it out, you know, at the end of days. And so, again, on my website, John, again, I have another link to the article. These are all linked on the main page, all the ones I've talked about, where I walk through this and do give you my own, my personal, deep, detailed analysis of it you might find it helpful if you want to check that out more than we've talked about here but um at any rate john um that would be m my top 10 list yeah and it is pretty bad heresy because he's literally saying that his <clears throat> words his sermons are the mystery of god and if you go back and you just 
you know, do a search in, in his sermon transcripts for the word mystery, and you'll find some of the nonsensical things that he say was actually revealed. And we've, we've examined many of those in our historical podcast, but <clears throat> I still go back to, you know, take any two people who are in this group, this body that has severed themselves from all other Christians who believe that they're the only ones. And even within the churches of the only ones, they have no idea what is this alleged mystery of God that has been revealed. You'll get no two consistent answers from any two ministers. And if it was truly the mystery of God that was revealed in the last days, you would think that the ministers would at least be consistent in what this mystery actually was. And it's even specifically, it says the mystery of God should be finished. So it's not like it's this mystery that they use the word progressive revelation, right? William Branham gave us this thing that if it's like if I were to take my glasses and just scrub them in the mud and I'm looking through squinting because he didn't reveal it very clearly, but we, the ministers of today who are, by the way, give us your tithe while we're doing it, we're going to explain what the mystery actually was that you could you can't see through your muddy glasses because we're going to give you the water to clean them. Doesn't say that. The, you know, this Bible verse says the mystery of God should be finished. And, and he died. I mean, it's that simple. And he died. So there's no way possible that this could even be even remotely related to William Branham or anything similar to William Branham. And, you know, the message has crazy gymnastics, mental gymnastics they jump through to explain how he died, yet the mystery was not finished. <laughs> yeah. <You know>? yeah. <laughs> uh, how, how it could be, you know, how, how did he die? And there's, you know, we didn't get the rapturing faith. I mean, how, yeah. how can that be? You know, how, how did he die? And, and that's the thing, right? I, if you, if one question I have, you know, just a very simple question. If William Branham came to restore the church back to a perfect state so it could go in the rapture, and why didn't it happen? Right? Yeah, <laughs> he, he died, right? <clears throat> why? Why is the church still here? Like, why didn't the rapture yeah. happen? What is the holdup? What are you waiting for? Where is the perfect church that looks like the Book of Acts that he was supposed to restore? It's not there. It. I mean, it. It doesn't exist. And the Bible says he, if he, if if he was Elijah, right, the Malachi four, he was supposed to be the one to do it, not his successors. It just, the message internal has so many internal contradictions that I think any person that starts just to think logically, even within the realms of the message, can start to wake themselves up. And so, yeah. you know, I don't know that anything we've said here is going to help anybody in the message, but maybe it'll help some of the people on the outside realize just how crazy <laughs> some of the stuff we believed was. <laughs> That's so wrong, man. You know, and I have my opinion of why this thing still exists. You're welcome to your opinion, but I have mine, and it has to do with the tithe, <laughs> the tithe plates that they pass every Sunday. But in in normal normal reality, if something was this badly wrong, and the person who brought the badly wrong thing died, in a normal scenario, most people are just going to walk away and say, "Hey, we're done with this." But unfortunately, there were some very devious minds who in my opinion, had some nice thick offering plates, and um, this thing has continued. So it is what it is. Like Charles said, I'm not trying to drag anybody out of the message. You're welcome to believe nonsense if you want to believe it. In my opinion, it is nonsense, but 
you know, you're welcome. It's definitely. To not <laughs> it's definitely <laughs> tell us the mystery. <laughs> tell us the mystery. <clears throat> if you've got some questions and you want us to answer them, um, we we're still taking questions. We're not doing podcasts uh, weekly like we were, but we are collecting questions and we um, hope to address anything that's very pressing. And if you've enjoyed the show and you want more information, you can check us out on the web. You can find us at william-branham.org and christiangospelchurch.org. For an overview of the historical research of William Branham and the Healing Revivals, read Preacher Behind the White Hoods, a critical examination of William Branham and his message, available on Amazon, Kindle, and Audible. 